I'm Bug, and I'm small. And I'm Craig, and I'm tall. Welcome to Small and Tall, where two best friends explore movies, franchises, and genres that wouldn't be covered on Permanent Good. What are we doing this month, Gregory? This month, we are watching seasons one through three of Family Guy. This is back when Seth MacFarlane was still very much like involved in the writing process. And I think that it's, you know, it's the first part of our long retrospective about like the entire MacFarlane universe. <clears throat> Craig, Craig. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wrong month. Wrong month? That's later? So I watched three seasons of Family Guy too early. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, buddy. Uh, well, now I got nothing to show for it. Um, this month we are doing musical movies. Back in November, we did movie musicals. The, you know, movies that were written as musicals. Now we are doing movie adaptations of Broadway musicals. I always feel like I need to explain it, like it's a complicated concept. You guys aren't stupid. Like, when I say the movies that we're watching, you're going to be like, yeah, I figured it out. Um, we are watching Phantom of the Opera, Chicago, Guys and Dolls, and Cats. Um, this is, as always, a full spoiler podcast, but how can you spoil the beautiful choreography and the love that goes into making movies like these? Oh, that was beautiful. Before we get into things, I do want to mention... That, you know, somebody here decided to to leave in my flustering and my grasping for our finale, our little sign-off last month. And I think we need to just lay that on the table right now. What have you to say for yourself? It was funny. <laughs> I stand by it. Oh, you know what? <laughs> I'm just going to say this one thing. All I said at the beginning of this year was that I was going to nail the opener. I said nothing about the closer. So we'll get there. The outro, the outro is next year's goal. One step at a time. Okay. Exactly. Be patient with me, people. Yeah. Listen. Hey, I just want to say that whenever I post like edits of the podcast and like, you know, I posted a video where you flubbed the intro and I made that the cold open. I got such a positive response from that video. I had people in my real physical life come up to be like, Craig, that was a really good podcast edit that you posted on TikTok. I'm like, you are so right. It was. Um, so I, what I'm saying is don't be afraid of your mistakes because it turns into, um, uh, compliments for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that you didn't necessarily share with me the star of that edit. Thank you. Look, I can't help it that I'm perfect even when I fuck up. <laughs> okay, I guess that's the route we're taking it. I mean... Look, you said not to be ashamed of it, you. so I'm going to be confident with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's go ahead. Oh, some context for this. Um... We both grew up as theater kids, um, so this is on track, you know, this is on brand for us. That being said, I was not exactly a very diligent theater kid. So going into this, the only show that I'm intimately familiar with is Guys and Dolls. Phantom, I know, like I know the iconic stuff, but I don't know it very well. Chicago and Cats, practically going in blind. So if you're ever like, I thought, they, I thought that he was like a really big theater kid. I was, 
But like, you want to talk to me about Godspell? I'll talk to you about Godspell. You want to talk to me about like Sweeney Todd? Let's talk about Sweeney Todd. But like, sometimes a few fly under your radar. And that's the way you have to live. I am very familiar with Phantom and Chicago. I have seen maybe 10 minutes of Guys and Dolls, and I watched the original Broadway VHS tape of Cats one time growing up, so this should be interesting. (laughs) Yeah, and I want to, I like setting the tone and like giving context for how we approach these things. Um, First up is Phantom of the Opera. All right, this is an Andrew Lloyd Webber joint. Sorry. No, you're all good. Um, We are going to be meeting Mr. Webber again later in the episode. Um, But Phantom of the Opera, it's actually really weird because when we chose this, this was not in the news. But like the day before we recorded this episode, um, the Phantom closed on Broadway after 35 years, which is crazy we just have this crazy thing where we somehow end up always choosing the correct topic for the month where yeah what we, we're talking about becomes very popular in the media we stumble ourselves into relevancy it's never on purpose um and phantom is like the first or second longest running broadway show in history um it's one of the most famous musicals and <laughs> some would argue it's Andrew Lloyd Webber's only good piece of media. Um, I am not here to debate that fact personally, but um, this is one of those musicals that you've probably heard songs of, even if you're not familiar with the show and you just didn't know it. The titular track is like maybe the most I- one of the most iconic like Broadway songs like ever i'm making a lot of bold statements right now but but you know <laughs> I was what just letting i you stand run. by them and what i love about this movie is that it's directed by joel schumacher and this is not joel schumacher's first time on the podcast previously he was a, he, we we saw him on the on the main feed um but joel schumacher is a director that most people would know him as the director for batman forever and batman and robin you know the two most controversial batman movies of all time <laughs> and i just find it so funny because i loved those movies as a kid they're very campy we did an episode about on batman forever i can go into it but these are some things that he directed and i think also wrote he wrote saint elmo's fire he wrote and directed saint elmo's fire the lost boys and then he went on to direct um a colin farrell movie called phone booth which we also reviewed on the podcast and then phantom of the opera and he did some house of cards directing And, like, talk about, like, range. Say what you will about Joel Schumacher's directing style. It's very specific, and you can pick up on one of his movies from a mile away. But Mm -hmm. this dude has range. Like, not many directors can hop from genre to genre, from, like, St. Elmo's Fire to Batman to 
a, a, a bottle movie with phone booth and then Phantom of the Opera. Those movies are so wildly different in almost every regard that the fact that he's able to go up to all of them and still put his like Joel Schumacher style onto it is, I think, very skillful. Whether or not you agree with the final product, like, I kind of respect what he's willing to take on. Schumacher got that range. Have you ever seen The Lost Boys? I haven't. Oh, tune in later, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of those movies I kind of figured was going to get on this show one way or the other. You betcha. Um, this movie also features uh, a young Emmy Rossum, a young Gerard Butler, a regular-aged Patrick Wilson. <laughs> um, and so it's really weird because, like, Emmy Rossum, I think, you know, most people know her from Shameless at this point. Um, and she was only 17 when she did this movie, which is crazy because christine is like the textbook musical soprano yeah so basically what i'm saying is this movie has a lot of legacy going into it um and i i i kind of liked nitpicking it from a technical perspective can i can i say my controversial opinion on this one real quick just right off the yeah. bat yeah <clears throat> so <laughs> You know how people feel about Russell Crowe in Les Mis? Yeah. That's kind of how I feel about Gerard Butler in this. That isn't as controversial a take as you think it is. Oh, no, I don't think it's all that controversial, but I've gotten heat for it. (laughs) But I do disagree to an extent. There are because if you look through the trivia on IMDb, which is the most reliable source, um, he was the only one that, who wasn't a previous singer. Um, correct. So he was taking voice lessons as the movie was being made, and and there it shows are some parts. It shows, but there are also some really impressive moments. Yes, like his his falsetto is surprisingly unwavering, but he doesn't have control of his middle range. Exactly. Um, and that's that's what the, I have trouble with is like when he's in his middle because there's certain songs where he spends most of his song in that middle range and I'm like Gerard buddy come on so overall I did not mind Gerard Butler singing um, here's what I'm gonna say to anyone that has not watched this here's kind of like the thing that I would prep you for is you would think that the title would explain it but i'm just gonna say it anyway this movie is an opera in Mm -hmm. theme and also style so emmy rossum gerard butler and paul wilson all patrick wilson i got unconfident and switched it up (laughs) gerard butler emmy rossum and patrick wilson all sing in a very musical theater style what you would expect from a musical adaptation everyone else in this movie sings very operatically that stereotypical like lifted palette very like um exaggerated vowels um that like stereotype it's almost 
like elitist in a way, the style of opera that they sing. Because, you know, in the setting, it is elitist. Opera yes. is kind of, it's an elitist art form. Um, but that's the tone. And that is a big hurdle for, I think, a lot of people. And I want you to know that going into it. That because the the movie starts with like a five minute operatic number. And if that's not your thing, it's easy to get turned off for the rest of the movie. But it becomes more musical theatery after that. Now, that being said, there's very little dialogue in this movie. It is all sung. And again, a thing that you should probably know going into it. Um, I will say that Emmy Rossum's voice definitely outshines everybody else. The entire Yeah, Emmy time. Rossum is almost perfect in this i like support her 100 percent. she's great um and it's you see it and like it, it's just genuinely so impressive because i was around phantom productions like in high school and stuff and i know how taxing that role is on somebody and so to be emmy rossum to be 17 and to be the movie christine is that is a big weight to carry and like i would say even more so than the phantom and Mm -hmm. and she just knocks it out of the park no no notes for emmy rossum you nailed it maybe even should have gotten an uh, an oscar nom for it this movie got oscar nominations and so like the academy was looking at this movie i so it is not out of the question to have asked for emmy rossum to get nominated for something because she she deserved it she really did uh this this movie starts with my second favorite black and white to color transition second only to the wizard of oz yes it does um is this the part where i explain the plot of the movie because i haven't done that yet that was your (laughs) lead-in So, the movie starts with this um, auction at a defunct opera house. Guess what? That opera house is relevant the entire movie. Um, And this happens at the end of the events of the movie, right? We go into flashback mode. That's where most of the movie takes place. And in this opera house where we enter the story, it has just transferred ownership to from someone who is very arts-focused to... Two people that are very money focused. And during a rehearsal, they get this note that's like, hey, there's a ghost that lives here. You have to pay him 20,000 francs a month and do what he says. Otherwise, he'll snap. You might not survive. And the new owners of this are, I'm going to say rightfully so, um, skeptic of this. They, this is, this is one of those, it's sorry. It's very hard to condense this into like a good no, thing. No, I get so, it. <laughs> um, and so they don't follow the, the Phantom's orders. They face his wrath. And as a consequence, Christine, who up to this point was just a background dancer, gets thrust into the limelight. And she's very talented. She immediately takes over for what used to be the lead soprano. And we learn that the reason why she's so talented is because she has secretly been taking voice lessons from the Phantom. And so now that Christina's basically had her shot at stardom, it's this kind of tug of war act where the executives still want the old soprano. But the Phantom is like, no, Christine's your new soprano. If you do not have her as the soprano, I'm going to like f*** up. And hey, guess what? He does. 
He murders for his girl. And so that's kind of the gist of this movie is the Phantom is incredibly protective over Christine and anyone that gets in his way faces his wrath. And that's what this movie is about is Christine respecting the Phantom, then not respecting the Phantom to disliking the Phantom. It's these two opposite arcs where the more the Phantom wants to be in love with Christine, the more that she is pulling away and he has to either cope with that or lash out. And we see both pretty intensely. And I think also, you know, Christine's reactions, because she goes through, she essentially is 15 years old in this, right? And so she comes to the realization that, you know, she initially thought this man was sent to her by her deceased father, but now is realizing, oh, this man is actually grooming me right now. And so you see that. And it's really weird for us as an audience, because the Phantom says this several times. He uses very paternal language when talking to to Christine. He even uses paternal language when Christine isn't around. Like When he's talking to himself, he will be like, I need to be fatherly to Christine and then gets jealous when she starts macking on some other dude. So it's, it's weird to see the phantom battle his like, do I protect her like a daughter or do I protect her like a wife? And the more he leans into the protect her like a wife, the less on his side you become. Cause like when you meet the phantom, like there's this big musical number that's it's very intimate and you're kind of like okay I can get on this phantom side and then he reveals this wax figure of Christine and it's very creepy and you're like I don't know if I'm on the phantom side anymore like the phantom has you unequivocally in his corner for like four minutes after that you're like oh this guy's creepy and obsessive well because okay so after the phantom you know sets up christine to have her big star of the opera moment she reunites with one of her you know childhood friends who she you know has a crush on because it's patrick wilson and his name is raul and so he's like up in her dressing room being like come out for a drink with us after your performance to celebrate that was amazing and she's like oh i don't know if i can my teacher's really strict and then you see him leave but then you see the phantom lock her in the room yeah dude does not hold back like what a creep so it's just so interesting because this movie is very dense as you can tell by the fact there was no short way for me to summarize this movie. Um, this movie is like two hours 20 and it uses like every second of it. But I also think that this movie does a pretty good job at like not treating you like you're stupid. Like if you have the subtitles on, you can understand all of the lyrics and you can get almost all of the imagery and analogies and themes without them being plainly spelled out to you. And I think that that's a very difficult line to walk. And I think this movie does it very well. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I will say that there are a lot of parts of it that are more campy than you'd think they would be, uh, you know, the Schumacher special, one would say. <laughs> uh, um, 
so you know that's also something to look out for but i love that about this like it just makes it like that much better like the little campy the little cringe you're like all right here we go and you know maybe or maybe not this might have been what started my interest in dark romance now that i rewatch it and look back into it i'm like hmm, <laughs> hmm things are now adding up just because you brought him up again i really want to sink home like what this movie's vibe is in terms of like cinematography and visual direction um when christine gets that first soprano solo she literally glows for the entire literally. song. She's backlit and is glowing the entire time. And when She's I noticed the star. that, like, yeah, exactly. So I that and that kind of is like what blends into the campiness so much is like, yeah, she's the star. And she's gonna glow. Um, and those are like the f- that's the fun part of this movie because this movie's pretty dreary, right? The Phantom is a very brooding character, and as a consequence, this is a very brooding movie. So any moments of levity, even if it's kind of silly, is appreciated. Yeah. Um. So I mentioned that this movie is two hours twenty, and I want to give props to my whole family for watching this movie with me. I gave them a choice. I said, do you want to watch Phantom of the Opera or Chicago? My parents said they didn't care. And Andrew said Phantom. So we watched Phantom. And I got to say, they sat through the whole thing. And there were some moments where I feel like they were ready to tap out. You know, Masquerade comes around. You know, that's the beginning of Act 2 of the stage show. And it's a really easy time to tap out. And, like, Dad fades out of movies pretty fast. If it's 9 o'clock and the movie's not done, he will finish it later. <laughs> um, but That's where you get they, it from. Yeah. They watched the whole thing, and this is something that I appreciate about my parents is even though that they were never in the musical scene outside of supporting me when I did it, like, my dad at several points through the movie was like, I have to appreciate how much effort it takes to make a movie like this. Because this is all, like, 1850s France. They're all wearing very intricate costumes. There's intricate choreographies, both operatically and, like, more musical theater dances. Like, Masquerade is a very musical theater song. So the choreography is a lot more succinct and tight. And then you have these operatic moments that are a lot more grand and sweeping in their movements. And this movie's ability to do both and do both well is a technical feat of grand proportions that, you know, it's I'm glad that, you know, my dad and my parents were able to appreciate that. Heck yeah. Good on them. I'm glad that they were able to experience this with you. Um, So we've talked about, you know, the Phantom being kind of creepy and re-listening to like the lyrics of music of the night you kind of hear just how creepy is and that is a scene where he has you know led christine from her tower dressing room down to his deep dark tunnels beneath the opera house and they're in like this gondola while he's singing love songs to her and so then He's singing music of the night. And as we're watching that scene, because I watched this with my partner, as we're watching that, Jordan just goes, what if Chris Hansen just crawled out of the boat right now? (laughs) (laughs) He was there the whole time. The whole time. (laughs) 
And that song is so interesting because you get all of the Phantom's motivations like right up front because the Phantom is uh, disfigured. That's why he hides under the opera is because he's disfigured and rejected by society. And he views Christine as his conduit for the arts. Like he has always had a love for the arts, but since he can't perform it, he, he does this whole number and Christine is singing to him. And she's like, you are giving me a new view on life. I appreciate music as a, from a different perspective because you are guiding me through it. And the phantom is like, you are my puppet of music. You will do what I say because I can't. And if and if everybody chooses not to listen to me, then they're going to regret it. I'm like, whoa, you guys are coming at this with wildly different tones. You are very clearly not seeing what the other person is seeing. And I guess that goes to show just how like innocent of a worldview Christine has. Because, I mean, she was orphaned at a young age and sent to this ballet house to live in the dormitory. So she hasn't really been like exposed to the outer world as much as somebody else her age might have been around that time and so like you see her innocence i guess more in that moment yeah and it's also shown like through her interactions with raul right yes uh and when they reconnect they hit it off immediately they get engaged instantly they get engaged instantly and i think that that's another aspect of it of like she recon and you know it's of the time to have short engagement so like whatever but you know to reconnect with her childhood friend know him for like three months tops and is like yes engaged let's do it um and then, you know, she's smart enough to understand that this is going to have consequences of the Phantom. So she tries very hard to have him not find out. However, he is not an idiot. Well, he was following them the entire time during All I Ask of You, so he knew what was going on. But I will say that All I Ask of You is better than Music of the Night, so I can't blame her for her choice Ooh, of who to pick interesting. over love songs. Interesting. Well, yes. Yeah, all I ask of you is a much more effective love song. I can agree with you on that point. Um, all in all, this movie is so hard, I think, to have a fully effective conversation about in like 20 to 30 minutes. This is a movie that you could teach like a semester course about because there's so much going on at like any given moment that like there are so many characters that we haven't touched on so many themes that like we don't have the time to bring up but i walked away from this movie just like really respecting everything that it brings to the table because it brings a lot but i also understand that like this movie is not unanimous like People despise Phantom. First of all, a lot of people despise Phantom because it's a Weber work. And they just see ALW and they're like, oh, no thanks. Ew, gross. But yeah. Phantom is like highly respected for a reason. Most people respect it for a reason. And you, it is easy to glean that from this movie. Definitely. Um, yeah, it's just so dense. And there's so many things that even I still want to touch on. But like you said, we don't have the time for and everybody just you know go watch it <laughs> just go watch it and you'll get it yeah um the yeah this movie just like it's so good i think man i 
I'm struggling with a rating because the mo- in the moment when you watch this movie, it feels long. It feels long, and I don't. This is one where I was even like, this could have ended by now. And I think that that does hinder the rating. Um, also, not all the songs in this movie are bangers. Um, there are some songs that I'd be cool with cutting. We could we could trim some of that fat out through some of these not as good or fun songs. Um, but all in all, it's a good experience. I would recommend it to a lot of people. Um, so I think it sits at like a, this might be, I'm going to say 7.75. Oh. I like this a lot. Yeah, I was going to give it a seven and a half. So there we go. It gets, yeah. a, it gets, it gets some extra brownie points for having my favorite, my second favorite, uh, black and white to color transition like i said yeah (laughs) and uh, yeah i can't i cannot spend this whole episode talking about broadway specifics i will i will dig us into a hole um next let's talk about chicago chicago i think is a really interesting case because as a show as like a broadway show right like it's good but i don't think it like defied anyone's expectations right we've had jazz musicals before it didn't like break any like industry molds or whatever but as a movie this movie got way more recognition than you would expect a movie like this to get um critics don't like musicals most people are harder on musicals than any other kind of movie um but this movie chicago has an 81 out of 100 on metacritic and one not nominated won six Oscars, one of them being best picture for that year. And of all the musicals that I've watched, this is not the one I would give it to. But I think what it it was 2004. So I think that like with the amount of everything that went into this and, you know, the choreography, because there is a lot of, you know, very intricate choreography in this one as well. Not as grand as Phantom, but, you know, but it's also, I think it also got a lot of attention because it's, it's for lack of a better word, it's a sexy movie. Like, it's just, it oh, has yes. that sexy vibe. And sex sells, you know, you have Catherine Zeta-Jones and Renee Zellweger in, you know, little flapper dresses for 90% of it. Yes. Um, j- so this movie was released in 2002. And so for the 2003 Academy Awards, this movie won for Best Picture over The Pianist. That was, you know, Adrian Brody won Best oh. Actor for The Pianist that year. And yeah. people herald The Pianist like it's in a lot of people's top five favorites. So I just, I'm not saying I like 100% disagree. I just think this is an interesting case where I think that even up to this point, there had been better musicals that had been released. And while this is very flashy and sexy, you're right. But like, usually the Academy is like not looking for that. Yeah. Now that I know that it was up against the pianist, that kind of, you know, it's weird, right? Yeah. (laughs) That was kind of out of left field. uh, But uh, this musical, I think, is probably the reason why it's as famous as as it is, is because this is kind of heralded as the best Bob Fosse work um, of his career. Oh, yeah. And uh, Bob Fosse was known for these, like, very, again, I'm going to keep using this word, like, this very, like, sexy dance style. He had, like, an elegance and a grace 
that um, sensual yeah that i think a lot of people associate with this era of broadway um and so it makes sense that a musical like this would get adapted and it makes sense that it would get kind of the recognition that it does just because bob fossey is like one of the biggest names in broadway like he's like he for the record he's famous for being a choreographer how many other famous choreographers Mm -hmm. do you know like that's how famous bob fossey is um the director for this movie rob marshall um this was his first like big direction that he did but he would then go on to direct Uh, Memoirs of a Geisha, Nine, which we watched on the podcast, Into the Woods, and Mary Poppins Returns. Um, I just, I find it interesting looking at, yeah, um, dude found a niche and he stuck to it. (laughs) Um, Does not have the shoemaker effect. Um, uh, So tell us what it's about. Chicago is much easier to explain. Renee Zellweger (laughs) plays a, a wannabe actress named Roxy Hart. She's having an affair. And kills the man she's sleeping with and gets sent to jail. She's trying to get out of jail, so she hires a lawyer named Billy Flynn. Billy Flynn, not afraid to make stuff up. He is a pretty unethical lawyer, but he never loses a case. So the movie is about Roxy Hart's life in jail and having the most sought-after celebrity lawyer trying to get her off the case. So it's part jailhouse movie part crime drama you know courtroom movie the last 20 minutes of this movie take place and it's it's a courtroom hearing um and like i said billy flynn is like the most sought after celebrity lawyer and so there are other girls in the penitentiary that have him as a lawyer and so Catherine zeta jones's character velma is the most prominent of these because she also has him as a lawyer and they're effectively competing for his attention because he really only works on cases if the case is famous if it's making papers if it's drawing headlines so these girls while in jail are trying to make themselves headline sensations so they could get face-to-face time with their lawyer yeah and velma was a you know famous she famous singer dancer you know, she had a show with her sister, a jazz show that they would put on, and she caught her sister and her husband fooling around with each other and shot them both and then proceeded to go get up on stage and perform their act herself all alone, turned a two-person act into a one-woman act, and you can't say she's not dedicated to the arts, and then she got arrested while she was up there, and that's why she is in the jail and they're all w- awaiting to see if they get hung in which did you know that the last hanging in america was in 1996 in delaware like as capital punishment <laughs> that was the most buck wild segue i've ever <laughs> heard in my life <laughs> I was ready to talk about like all that jazz and you were like, hey, did you know that we hung someone less than 30 years ago? It's wild, isn't it? I needed to share. The world needs yeah, to no, know. You're, no, you're right. But you have to understand where I'm coming from, too. Hey, um, I thought I set it up pretty smooth for myself. Yeah, um, it's definitely weird because the hanging is 
not unimportant. It comes up a few times. Um, now, all that jazz. This is my controversial opinion. Overhyped. Not a good opening number. It's a little too down-tempo for my liking. I kind of wish it was a little more upbeat. Yeah, but it's just Fosse. And Fosse is kind of, you know, sensual and down-tempo. They had to reel you in with the sex appeal. Yeah, um, but this musical has some pretty famous numbers in it. Um, all that jazz is pretty famous. The cell block tango is like incredibly iconic. Um, iconic. Both reached for the gun is one of my favorites. Um, so this movie, again, you've probably heard songs from this show before. It's probably all that jazz or the cell block tango. Um, razzle dazzle. That's another yes. One. Oh yeah. Give them get. Yeah. Give them the razzle dazzle. Um, <laughs> That lost its spark. I got. I did get lost in that in that very short sentence. Um, the ethics of this plot are never fully established, and it lives in this like morally gray area the entire time. And I never really felt like I, as an audience member, had to make a choice on if I agree or disagree with what they're doing because they walk that line so delicately from scene to scene of if what they're doing is legal or morally questionable or not. And so, like, this whole thing starts with Billy Flynn, like, fabricating this intricate past for Roxy that isn't true. In fact, this movie even starts with, like, after the murder takes place, Roxy's husband is telling a lie that we know is a lie because we just watched the murder happen. And when he's talking, I was like, did I miss something? Did I not understand what just happened? And then as the scene breaks down, you're like, oh, he's covering for her. And that's kind of what this movie is, is it's various people covering for Roxy. And it really makes you think like, how easy was murder to get away with in the 1920s? Like there's a John Mulaney bit that covers like effectively this same topic, but like as long as you have one trustworthy person to validate your alibi, you have a pretty decent chance of not going to jail. Yeah. And I will say that you know what Velma's motive I can see it I can see it but Roxy throughout this you know at the end of the day I didn't think she was all that redeemable oh yeah Roxy is not the victim here Roxy like like, Amos is the victim through and through her husband is the victim and shout out to John C. Riley. John C. Riley is so. This is such a weird compliment to give somebody. John C. Riley is plays the perfect pathetic character. Anytime you need just the <laughs> most pathetic, like sackable character, John C. Riley gets that down. Damn. <laughs> um, no, he does, and uh, you know, like. Mr. Cellophane, I think, is an underappreciated number. Yeah, because this whole movie, he's getting jerked around. And he puts up with it because it's like, that's his, like, she's my wife. I should stand by her. But the longer this movie goes on, the more he gets thrown under the bus. He's used as a butt for a lot of the lies that Billy Flynn spins to try to get Roxy out of trouble. And this all pens- uh, this all kind of culminates to him singing Mr. Cellophane. That's like, you could, you know, one of the 
repeated lines in the chorus is like, you could walk right by me and not even know I'm there. You can see right through me, not even know I'm there. Like, I'm useful, I'm practical, but I I get used. That's my purpose. And I agree, that number is, like, a very good part of this movie. And, you know, Roxy literally killed this man because she wanted to be famous. He was lying to her, saying that he could make it happen. And then he was like, I was lying to you. And so she was like, oh, you know what? Then you're dead because you promised you'd make me famous. What a lame reason to kill somebody. Yeah, and listen, the cell block tango is catchy and fun and all. None of them are victims. Not mm-hmm. None of them are well, victims. Well, I'd say there were a couple who were victims. Yeah, and they have this line in that song that's like, it was a murder but not a crime. And I'm like, some of these were crimes. Some, yeah, some of these were crimes. <laughs> um, I think don't re- or we both reached for the gun is such... I, lo- I love that number so much. It is the most aesthetically pleasing number in the movie for me personally. Just like all the marionette movements and the dual perspective of Billy Flynn also being the puppeteer and the way that it gets incorporated into the dancing and the singing. Like, it is so good. I love that number so much. I think one of the coolest parts about this movie is that, like, all of the musical bits are done as, like, a cabaret. Like, a cabaret show, and then it cuts back to, like, real life and reality. Because, you know, everybody just wants to be famous, so then everybody's inner monologue is, like, this super big cabaret with a giant audience where they're all performing bits of their life in front of them and then it just like the juxtaposition of zapping back to the jailhouse after that or the courtroom i think is really cool it's just a vibe it is just a vibe (laughs) of like whenever they do that cabaret stuff like for it took a few times for me to realize that it wasn't literal you know swapping Mm -hmm. between the the cabaret scenes uh but once you catch on that this is you know effectively an artist's rendering of what happened then you're you're allowed to play in the space a lot more and that's what makes it fun yeah for sure and again this goes back to roxy not being the victim when she does her big ballad and she's like oh i just wanted to be famous is that such a crime i'm like buddy buddy i don't you are not the person you think you are in this situation exactly like she's just she's just a conniving little twit yeah she's like oh am i in over my head like yeah maybe but i can count the number of choices you made to get here and i just throughout the movie you have tay diggs as kind of like the mc or the narrator of sorts more so the mc but (laughs) his little comments throughout like here's velma kelly in an act of desperation really added some lightness to the serious moments of the film. Yes. Overall, this movie is very jazzy. Like, this is exactly what you would expect if you were to pull, like, songs from the 20s and put them on Broadway. Like, that's what you get visually. That's what you get in choreography. That's what you get musically. Like, it is very true to the genres that it's pulling from yeah and um they do a really good job 
of, you know, playing the, once again, the juxtaposition between Velma and Roxy, it's very, like, Elphaba and Glinda, almost, with, like, you know, Black Cat Velma and Bubblegum Roxy, and how, you know, initially Roxy is such a big fan of Velma, and then Velma kind of snuffs her once they're in jail, jail together, and then... You know, once Roxy becomes more famous, then Velma wants to be all buddy buddy. And I think it was there's a there's a line at the end where Velma is like begging Roxy to do a show with her, and Roxy's like, I can't do that because I hate you. And Velma's like, Well, there's only one business where that doesn't matter. And I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. Overall, I think this movie is a movie that I think a lot of people should watch because. It has a lot of cultural significance, and you will understand a lot more references after you watch this movie. But in the end, it didn't change my life. Like, it was nice to see some of these numbers performed. But, like, I think this is very flashy and fun to watch, but I don't have it go much further past that. Yeah, it's... I'd say, you know, not to necessarily, you know, put it in a box... But I'd say that this is one of those musicals that, I guess, appeals more to, you know, it's the story of ladies and, like, their cheating husbands or, you know, them, you know, trying to lie their way through things. So it appeals more to, like, I guess, people who can relate the to women that. and their naturally evil tendencies. <laughs> well, maybe not that. Maybe maybe that's taken a little far. But the women, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know this movie proves that all women are evil, and I'm here to say I'm going on Breitbart News tonight so that I can continue uh, this. <laughs> I've cut it off right there. You know who's uh, underappreciated in this movie? I feel like Queen Latifah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm I like, love me who some Queen Latifah. I was just like, who haven't we talked about yet? Queen Latifah. <laughs> Queen Latifah. Um, Queen- you know, it's. Queen, it's Queen fu- Latifah is one of those people that just pops up in movies randomly and like I never expect her and like you know with the exception of Hairspray like I can't imagine anyone else doing Hairspray like she did it but like every every other time I see her I'm like why is Queen Latifah here why couldn't this have been anyone else Hey, I love her. I'm never upset no. when she's there. Listen, I'm not disparaging her at all. I'm not saying like she was bad in this movie. It's just like in my head, Queen Latifah was like already too famous. She's always too famous to do the things that I see her in. Yes. Whenever I see yes. her in something, I'm like, I'm like, why is Queen Latifah doing this? She's <laughs> like, does she not have more important? She had things the time. Do? <laughs> no, she had the time. You know okay. who I want to see. You know, you know who I want to see do a cover of When You're Good to Mama? I could not possibly guess this out of thin air. Lizzo. Oh, okay. Like, I feel like it sure. would be so good. Because she, yeah. she also, like, she, I guess, reminds me a lot of Queen Latifah and, like, kind of how she, like, holds herself and all that stuff. So I feel like it would, I feel like it would be a good one. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm giving this one a flat seven. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm gonna give this one a seven and a quarter. Yeah, it, good. I like it a D- lot. Didn't change my life. Yeah, go. Yeah. Look. All right. You know what? You know what I learned? You know what I learned from this? No. Everybody else might have the Riz, 
but I got that raz and that daz. I'm stopping the recording. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the next movie that we have to talk about, it's our oldest on the list. It is the one that I have the most personal attachment to. It's Guys and Dolls. Um, I did, this was the, one of the last shows that I did with like the theater troupe that I grew up performing with. Like I was with this group for like seven years or something like that. And so Guys and Dolls was one of the last shows I was in. It was like the show that I was in when I was in my first relationship in high school. Like this show is, I'm very sentimental about this show. Um, that being said, this movie is too long. Holy crap. Oh my god! It is incredibly long. Is it is it as long as the musical is? Like, is the musical in runtime about yes. equal? Yes. And so, so you have to remember, I was in. You know, the group that I was in was like mostly for middle schoolers. So we did the junior version of this show. So mm. we got there were lots of scenes that were cut. Like there are a lot of songs from this show. Like Sumi is not in the junior version of the show. Um. Buy Me a Mink or whatever that song is called. Um, that like we didn't do that song. So there are basically all the Nathan Detroit stuff got cut. Um, you can see and, why. Uh, I played Nathan Detroit oh. in my production of it. So well. <laughs> so all, all the parts that I could have had got got cut. So to answer your question, this version's longer than the version that I did. As far as the Broadway show is concerned, I have to imagine they're about beat for beat, right? Um, so it's interesting. Maybe it's my sentimental attachment to it, but the Nathan Detroit stuff is all the stuff that I enjoyed from this movie. So let's break it down a little bit. This movie takes place, you know, 40s, 50s. A long time ago. Um, And it's about this guy named Nathan Detroit who runs the most popular floating crap game in New York. Um, He's in charge of setting up these crap games and telling all the big gamblers where it's going to be while avoiding the eye of the police. And he's setting up potentially the biggest crap game he's ever set up before. The only problem is he needs $1,000 to basically make a down payment on the place that he wants to rent out for this craps game. And so to do that, he takes a bet with another high roller that's visiting in town named Sky Masterson. And so the bet is Nathan saying to Sky, hey, I bet that you couldn't take a girl to Havana with you for dinner tomorrow. And the guy and the girl that he chooses for this bet is this very high strung Uh, Christian missionary. And so the movie is equal parts Nathan running this underground craps game and Sky Masterson trying to wooing and the aftermath of this sequence of events with this mission girl. Um, So it's equal parts gambling and romance. Um, Nathan Detroit in this movie is played by Frank Sinatra and Sky Masterson is played by Marlon Brando. And, and I'm going to say this out the gate. Like, I do not like Sky Masterson very much as a character. I do not like Marlon Brando very much as an actor. And I was incredibly bored by all the romance subplots in this movie. Yeah. Uh, I was not a fan of Marlon Brando, you know, talk singing for the most part. And I can see why f- it's infuriating. I can see why Frank Sinatra was so mad that Brando got the po- part. <laughs> yeah. Th- and I'm going to say this. 
I'm not like a huge Frank Sinatra guy, right? Some might even argue, never really a fan. Didn't really see it. In this movie, I see it. it. Um, There's a song where he talks about like how much he loves his fiance. And he's like, I know that she deserves better than me, but I can't get any better than her is effectively the theme of the song he sings. And there's something about that song that I was just like, get it, Frank. (laughs) You got this song. You own this one, man. He was feeling it that day. So you spoke about how you have like a super sentimental connection to this one. I had never seen it before this. This was my first time. I'd seen like bits and pieces of it. And obviously I've heard the music of it here and there in our time in theater. And... You know, I didn't really like it all that much, if I'm being honest. It wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. But I'm also just not that big of a fan of this era of musicals, if that makes sense. Yes, Golden Age. You you could argue with some scholars on whether or not this is a Golden Age musical. I'm going to say it is. Um, all Golden Age musicals have that quality about them. Of like, they are very slow usually they have these very like soliloquy-esque numbers that like you don't really see in the same style anymore um it's just like a lot more like oddly formal yes is kind of a way to put it where like these musicals are just as much recitals as they are actual shows and yeah. so all the songs that adelaide sings and all the songs that Sarah sings the mission girl. Um, all of their songs are almost entirely showcase songs. They move very little forward. Sarah, Sarah's songs move the plot forward. I don't want to like um, dumb her character down like that, but they have that quality about them. Like none of their songs are super upbeat or dancey or just like energetic. They are all these very like heavy ballads and it's super i totally understand the lack of appeal I to it i think my biggest issue with it is i am not a fan of the singing style that is used especially by the women during this era like i i don't know exactly how to explain it but i think i think you probably know what i mean yeah it's that like pseudo operatic style yes. where like um it's not uh, it's not full blown uh, stereotypically operatic. Like, there is a musical theater quality to it. It's like opera but, in the nose. Uh, yeah. And it's and it sh- it's showcased more in women at this time than men. Um, you get bits and pieces of it, depending on what musical you watch. Like, Fiddler on the Roof it's is huge. a much more operatic show than this one is. Um, but... Yeah, I totally understand. I think that there are very few, like, it sucks to say it like this, but, like, I find myself listening to way fewer of the female songs from this era than the traditionally male songs of this era. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it it does have to do with that tone more than anything else. Um, I'm sure that these songs could be modernized and kind of reinvented a little bit. But as they exist in 1955, like, yeah, the musical tastes has evolved and changed since then. I'm not saying these songs are inherently bad. They're just a product of their time. For sure. And as soon as I heard Marlon Brando singing uh, Luck Be a Lady, I was like, hmm, I need 
to listen to this. It's awful. I was like, I need to listen to this by somebody who actually knows what they're doing, and I'm sure it would be phenomenal. So my two biggest gripes, my next two biggest gripes, because I'm griping a lot about this movie, um, is the two songs that I was looking forward to the most are the two songs I was most disappointed mm. by, because it's Luck Be a Lady and Sit Down, You're Rocking yeah. the Boat. Luck Be a Lady is just, I'm going to be mean, butchered. Okay. Like, if you guys were mad about Russell Crowe and Les Mis, if you guys were mad about Gerard Butler in Phantom, move out of the way, because <laughs> we got Marlon Brando in Guys and Dolls that takes the cake. I have never seen a movie with Marlon Brando in it where his performance or the overall quality of the movie justifies all the awful things that I've heard about him, like as a person. And so it just baffles me that again, being maybe a little brutal here, it's crazy that, that he's one of the people that we've decided is like an immortal legacy because of all the stuff that I've seen with him in it, he or the movie itself is okay at best. Like I like this movie and I would, I don't want to say I would recommend it to people. I would watch this movie with people, which I think is like a step below mm -hmm. recommending it to someone. Um, I would watch this movie with someone, Um, but like he really kills the momentum of this movie hardcore yeah i did going into this knowing the tension between sinatra and brando and you know not necessarily knowing how bad it would be i did not expect to be this much on sinatra's side <laughs> yeah i started listening to luck be a lady and my first thought was like oh i understand why frank sinatra released his own version yeah <laughs> it, it just like instantly made sense i get it now because you know you look at it and you're like oh maybe frank sinatra just made his own version because he's the famous singer it helps with marketing of the movie and then you see this you see marlon brando perform it and you're like oh no he made that song out of spite, spite. And i agree you're spite and the and the other song that i was kind of disappointed by was sit down you're rocking the boat because that song might be in like my top 10 favorite musical theater songs of mm -hmm. all time. I it's love so that song. Oh, it's so good. And it is rushed to high heaven in this movie. Like none of the performers have time to breathe or sit on a note or like indulge themselves in this performance. And there are traces of that in other songs in this movie, too. Like, hey, this movie's two and a half hours. We can't milk these songs. Otherwise, it's going to be a three-hour movie. I get that. I would have found some space for this song specifically. Because what makes that song so good is the juxtaposition between Nicely Nicely's ballad with the chorus tempo of... Uh, of everything else mm -hmm. so just that like a bouncy feel to it deserves time to live and this version just didn't have it, that. It, this version kind of sucked the fun out of it and it was like you were trying to get through it at the end of a long rehearsal day exactly yeah it's like hey we have 45 dollars in the budget we have time for one shot and we have less film than we thought we did make double it time work. let's go um I will say the opening to this movie is so cool. Cool. It's weird, but it's cool because 
Um, if you don't know what this movie is about going into it, this movie gives you like subtle clues, but it doesn't mm-hmm. tell you because it's this very intricate dance number. It's like a five minute dance number of these gamblers on the street picking up like bookie information and horse race information and um, dropping off bets with their book. And like, it's all done through this elaborate dance number, but the details of it are small enough that if you're not paying attention, you will miss them. And I would understand how someone couldn't pick up on what it's about from that. And then it transitioned into, and then it transitions into Fugue for Tin Horns, which is my least favorite song from this show. I don't get the hype around it. A lot of people say it's like one of the best. That's I'm not going to speak on other people. But I've heard a lot of people praise this song higher than it should. That being said, the final harmonies in that song were pretty good to the point where I was like, all right, I'll forgive the boring beginning <laughs> of this song because these harmonies were like pretty tight here at the end in kind of a way you don't see for the rest of the yeah. movie. The choreography in this entire film is phenomenal, especially at the beginning. And there, like, there's this whole sequence of like people pickpocketing a pocket watch from each other and like kind of like passing it off. Yes. And I thought that was so cool and so smooth. And I was like, wow, that kind of makes me want to do this. <laughs> and this is one of those things where I'll say we don't get musicals like this speaking on this show's behalf. Because the choreography in this musical is very, like, lanky is the Mm. word that comes to mind. Like, everybody's knees are up to their elbows and, like, they're shifting their whole body with their their dancing. And, like, it's this kind of energy that, like, you... I, I I at least don't see as much anymore. Um, not to be old man that yells at cloud, but I think it's vi- it's nice to have a movie like this where after like a bunch of modern musicals that kind of take like a lot of hip hop influences, which again is not a bad thing. It's nice to go back to like a fifties musical where they kind of just don't care and go balls to the wall. Yeah, it's very very jazzy. Very, uh, like you said, swanky, lanky, all that jazz. Swanky, lanky was my nickname in high school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say the one part of, like I said, I don't like the Havana stuff at all. So I'm not inclined to stick on it for very I long. I don't have hardly any notes on it. So um, when it comes to the gambling stuff, it was kind of irritating. I have to imagine this irritated you in the same way. When what's the what's the dude's name like Big Jewel or whatever? Mm. Um, when he is doing his like craps run, and he's like, "Let me use my own personal oh, dice." Oh my god! I had the dots removed, but I remember where they are. And Nathan just lets that slide, like that's nonsense. Like he's running the game. He has the power. Maybe it's some unspoken like street cred That's thing I don't is. understand. But but like it's it blows my mind that he doesn't like turn to nicely and be like, hey, this sucks, right? Like we shouldn't let him do this. And they like figure it and I don't know. I if I was running that game, I would have like I, I would have tried to put my foot down a little bit harder than Nathan did. He he let Big Jewel walk all well, over him. <laughs> If so, like that was going on and he was like hesitant about it and then it starts and he's like going along with it because like you said, street cred, because Big Jewel has the ability to, you know, smush Nathan Detroit beneath his 
thumb because you know chicago was big and scary um (laughs) but then you like you see nathan say that he's gonna use his dice now for his run you know his own personal dice and then he gets interrupted by sky so he was gonna push back he just got interrupted yeah and so i just thought that was a a very weird kind of sequence of events that felt a little out of character for nathan and also just unnecessary for the story I also um, thought that the choreography yeah. right before that was so phenomenal. It was so amazing. Yeah, absolutely. The problem with that one, however, and so, yeah, during this big craps game in the literal sewers, we get this the final like big dance number of the movie. The problem that it faces, though, is that it's too late. Yeah. It's too late. I have already, my attention is already waning, and I'm like, I still have 40 minutes left in this movie, and you just see all these dudes just, like, kicking themselves in the chin with their knees, and I'm like, this is all very well and good, guys. Can we just sing Lucky <laughs> Lady and get out of here, please? Please. Yeah. It- so, I'm harping on this movie a lot. I like it more than I sound like I do. Um... I just think there is a version of this movie that's just the Sky Masterson and Sarah stuff. And there's a version of this movie that's just the Nathan Detroit and Adelaide stuff. I did not need this movie to have both. True. I think that this has a really good supporting cast, too. Um, Specifically, like, the police officer that's kind of breathing down their neck. Officer Brannigan, like he has very little screen time in this movie, but for some reason, every time he pops up in it, I'm like, hey, man, how's it going? It's very uh, it's very like Officer Krupke from West Side Story, where like, you know that his appearance is going to make the scene better somehow, either in story or performance. Um, And then obviously, like, Nicely Nessie Johnson, like, it's hard to cast that role wrong. Like, it's such an, it's so bubbly, and I, you know, he's funny in this movie. It's just, it's Mm -hmm. really good. Um, I I would like to share my favorite lyric from this uh, show, which is, um, (laughs) there's a song that they do towards the beginning of the movie where they're brainstorming ideas for this floating crap game. And they, and they're talking about like Nathan Detroit, he's the best at this. And it's a whole song and dance number. And there's a part where they sing like about all the places that they can't go they're like the police are breathing down our neck so hard we can't go to this place because it's going to cost us a thousand dollars we can't go to this place because our old lookout wasn't very good and we can't go to the police station anymore that's no longer a place (laughs) we can go to play craps and i and i just thought that was really funny because up to that point that song is very kind of like not like that whole song is kind of silly and campy, but when they take the time to like set up and tell an actual joke, I'm like, that was a good that one, was guys. A good one. That was a good. Yeah, they, that was a they good slipped one. that one right in there. And and I think overall, this movie is very charismatic and charming. I wouldn't call it funny. Um, it's funny in the sense that it's a lot of breathe through your nose laughs, where they kind of just say something silly, and you're like. Okay, whatever. Similar to Chicago. Yes, yeah. Um, this movie cements the conspiracy theory of um, I of at this point we're picking and choosing what movies were in black and white and which ones mm. were in color because it doesn't make any sense because we watched another Frank Sinatra movie 
uh, on Permanent Good a few weeks ago called The Manchurian Candidate. And that and that movie came out like seven years after this one. And this one was the one in color and not Manchurian Candidate. And it like every time I look into why were some movies in black and white and some weren't, I never get a straight answer. Like uh, The obvious answer is money mm-hmm. and technology. The overall theme is like lighting a movie to be in color without the proper technology is really hard. And in order to keep the lighting consistent, like it takes a lot of money. So they really only did it with surefire movies. But then you get like, I don't know. There are some movies that we have watched for the podcast that I feel like could have been in color and weren't. Like The Manchurian Candidate is not exactly a spectacular movie, visually speaking. We could have we could have used the extra dough to, to maybe throw some color on there. Maybe it's a studio thing. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it a lot. But it feels weird that this movie gets to be in color. And seven years later, like another movie with Frank Sinatra isn't. Yeah, that is very strange, and they are very picky and choosy. Um, you've talked about your gripes with this, and I've sprinkled mine in. But I think my biggest, and I know, I know what the response to this is going to be, and how it's just how it was, and how they talked. But I'm like, wow, I did not think they could fit so much misogyny in two and a half hours. <laughs> But it is literally every other line. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they use the title of this movie, like, very liberally throughout this movie. You know, they talk about the guys and they talk about the dolls. And all women in this movie are either dolls or broads. Mm-hmm. That's it. And so Sky Masterson is, like, the more misogynistic one between the two. Because, like, Nathan is, like, kind of trying to, like, settle down and whatnot. We- and he's flip-flopping in a way that would take an entire semester of collegiate analysis to, like, really break down. Um, and, but Sky's kind of, like, the player. And he we meet him, and he has this kind of, like, chauvinistic attitude about him, where he's like, I can take whoever I want. I'm going by myself because that's the challenge. It's more challenging for me to be alone than it is for me to be with a doll. And then they sing a whole... not immediately after but later in the movie there is a song that is sung about how like guys are giving up their manhood to appease the woman that they're with which like the song is so catchy that you kind of forget how like gross it is as a concept um it's just like a three minute song of these dudes being like well if this guy wants to get a job you know that it's because he's trying to please a lady like it it really is like it, it's frustrating how often they beat that point home where it's like it's kind of like how we make fun of like 90s comedians for hating their wives and telling jokes about yes. how much they hate their wife like same vibe as that as soon as sky masterson took the one thousand dollar bet that he could get sarah to go to havana with him i knew exactly where that plot line was gonna go i didn't need to know anymore therefore you know what they could have looped us back in at the end and focused on nathan and adelaide who everybody was more interested in anyway and then it would have also cut out like 80 percent of the misogyny and it would have been at least 40 minutes shorter yeah i definitely like 
understand one's hesitancy to like relate to any of these characters in this show. I certainly am not in a rush to do any of that. Uh, Cause like Nathan Detroit, he's been in this engagement for 14 years and every time he is given the opportunity to actually follow through and do this wedding. He backs out and just goes to a craps game instead, which like Adelaide, honey, you can do better. True. It, but she's lying to her mother about having five kids. Yeah, that's, um, whew, yeah. I could never. Um, but then she also has this man groveling on his knees for her. So yeah, give and take. Yeah. Give and take. I overall think this movie is not for everybody. Mm-mm. You really got to be into this style of musical. Um, I'm giving it like a six and a half. Mm-hmm. Like it would take a lot for me to watch this movie again, but like, I'm going to pick like four or five songs out of this soundtrack, not this soundtrack, but like a Broadway soundtrack. Um, and maybe put these back into rotation. Cause I, I enjoy it a lot. I have expressed my opinion on this exhaustively. I am going to give it, a flat five for this movie itself it gets a whole extra point making it the five for the choreography in it i would say that if i did get to see this on stage perhaps i would probably rate it one one and a half points higher well then you should have seen it when i did it like 10 years ago so i think i've seen clips whose fault is that Okay, <laughs> now we get to move on to maybe the, the, the headliner of this episode. The one that, like, I was most interested to see. Yeah, same. And that is Cats. Um, Cats is another Andrew Lloyd Webber joint who we saw back in Phantom of the Opera. And this one is a doozy i am very unfamiliar with most of the music and the overall concept of this show um i know some of the hits not memories for some reason how how like rum tum tugger song i'm very familiar with uh but this one is just like it's crazy like i don't know how to explain how crazy it is um Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. You're just going to gloss over the fact that you didn't know the most popular song from this musical. Like it's nothing. How have you made it this far without like knowing it? Like I know of it. And like, I know the bit that's like on TikTok a lot, but I don't really. Hey, I don't really make a habit of sitting down and listening to the cat soundtrack. Okay. But that's that that song itself has been in so many other movies. It was referenced in School of Rock. I don't know how to. I don't know what to do here. <laughs> I feel like I'm at. A, uh, we've recognized a mistake that I can no longer remedy. Um, I'm kind of just. I think we kind of just have to move forward now. Uh, scolding um, over. So this movie. Is about it's based on a T.S. Eliot story, from what I understand, um, where it's about a bunch of these cats called Jellicle cats, who, from what I understand, are not normal cats. Lord help me if I were to know how or why. <laughs> and there's an event that they do once a year called the Jellicle Ball, where they audition for Judy Dench, and <laughs> Judy Dench gets to choose a cat from the multitude of people that have auditioned, and 
gives them another life, which again, don't know where this other life takes place. <laughs> don't know why this isn't more of like a blood sport event. It's, and it's weird that Judy Dench, who is also a jellical cat, like she is also like. Yeah, why does she get to make the decisions? Uh, yeah, not only is she, does she have the same amount of power as everyone else, she should also be vying for this opportunity. She is just as qualified to get another life, from what I understand. Um, and our audience in, our protagonist, if you will, is um, a character named Victoria, who just kind of gets dropped into Jellicle City or whatever. And we don't know why, we don't know how, all we know is that she gets picked up by Mr. Mistopheles and he's like, I'm going to show you around town. And then we meet like eight different cats who all get their own number for better and for worse. Um, that's the kind of deal with the whole movie. Most of this movie, 80% of this movie is us being introduced to Jellicle cats and them singing a song about themselves. That's yeah, most of the movie. It's their audition. We're just seeing everybody's audition, essentially. So this movie came out in 2019 and this movie was lambasted in almost every sense of the imagination. And I get it. I understand I I really I try to be so optimistic. I try to be so glass half full when I watch movies, especially movies like this that are like high budget. Lots of people worked on it. It's like a lot of people's livelihoods live in this movie. So I try to be very glass half full about it. But oh boy, is this movie not doing itself any favors. Now, I am not one to speak uh, comparing this to like the weirdness of the Broadway show. The Broadway show is like weirdly revered. It was in production for like 25 or 30 years. It used to be the longest running show on Broadway. So like there is an appeal to it that is not transferred to the cinematic version for one reason or another. I, like many, avoided watching this. And in all honesty, most of me agrees with you, right? Like, mm, mm, this was something to get through it takes you at least the first 30 to 45 minutes to even somewhat get over the uncanny valleyness of these humanoid cats yeah and that's a matter that i want to speak to because like the uncanny valley of the cg did not throw me off as much as it throws other people off like when trailers for this movie came out like people were like up in arms about like how awful the cg looked it's not that bad what's bad like you know shot for shot it's serviceable, right? It's when they start doing cat-like stuff. Yes. I remember having this thought in the in the opening number where, like, I'm like, oh, this CG isn't actually that bad. And then they show a shot of, like, just, like, one of the background dancers scurrying down a post. Like, cats are able to, like, climb down something. And it's with that same, like, hurriedness that cats have. But it looked like garbage, it, it was, like, one of the worst shots in this movie. It's, like, right up front. So I think when it comes to the people, it's fine. It's as soon as they start doing anything extravagant or cat-like that the CG falls apart, like, disastrously. Well, not only is it those moments, but it's also when, like, in relation to the props and, like, the setting of where they are, when they're shown as, like, cat-sized, right? Like, I don't know why I would be more comfortable with 
human-sized humanoid cats doing their thing in relation to these props, but when they're shown as, like, cat-sized, I get a little weirded out. It just, it makes something, it sets off some sort of alarm in my brain, and it doesn't like it. Yeah, um, man, every performance in this movie sucks, except for Jennifer Hudson. She gets a pass. I'll say Everyone- I'll say Jennifer Hudson, but also the 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 one other song that I did like other than memory was Mr. Mustafeli's song because I got a little yeah. soft spot for him. Sure. And well, I still disagree. I uh, that is a point that I'm willing to uh, see and accept. Um what really got me, the moment I knew that there was no redemption for this movie, the moment that I realized that I agreed with all the lambasting that this movie was given was when we get introduced to rebel wilson's character and she sings like miranda sings mm-hmm. it's, i will it's say that all, it feels like a joke i will say that outside of her singing some of her dialogue is pretty funny at least it was while i was watching it but <laughs> sure the singing and yeah like, miranda sings for sure just very like unnecessarily nasal like it it sounds like you know like a like a freshman high schooler that like is in choir for the first time it's just like it just it though tone is not where it needs to be um uh i will say far and away the worst song in this movie is bustopher jones Mm -hmm. um like don't like i'm not a james corden hater in the same way that everyone else is a james corden hater but after watching this movie i i might be (laughs) <laughs> might be on board with that one because i don't know he just performs it in not a fun way the choreography is incredibly i'm gonna sound so snobby this is the snobbiest i'm gonna sound so buckle in the choreography and like the visual design for all the set pieces are like incredibly derivative this movie can't decide if it wants the cats to be do human-like things, and that's the joke, or if they're just cats. And all of that is surmised in the Bustopher Jones song because, like, there's a joke where he gets hit in the nuts, and ooh, ow, that hurts. But he's also digging through a bunch of trash. And, like, just all the physical characteristics that Bustopher Jones has feels like it's a parody of itself, and it ha- and but but it's parodying something that hasn't happened yet. This movie like tries to be elegant, and I think that you know the purpose of this movie is supposed to like showcase some sort of like existentialism into like what how we treat each other and what our expectations for like a future life might be. But what ends up happening is it's ruined. Any sort of like philosophical message is weighed down and actively destroyed by the unwillingness to commit to one thing or the other for the entirety of this movie. This movie can't decide if it wants to be beautiful or funny, if it wants to be elegant or campy. Like any of those things is fine, but it's trying to juggle everything and it does none of it. One of my points that I was going to make is that I think ALW was trying to do too much with this. Like he needed to pick a route and go with it, but he had like 20 different routes. He was trying to get to work together and they just weren't. And this show like on 
Broadway, I feel like for the other version that I remember seeing, I remember it being much more of a ballet than this is, in which like the ballet bits are pretty phenomenal choreography wise throughout this. But it also makes me very glad that the few people who kept pushing and pushing and pushing for us to do this in high school did not get their way because it would have been a disaster for all of us. But you know... Who tried getting us to do cats? Uh, uh, oh. That group. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Yeah. They had bad taste in general. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you know who I didn't expect to be as bad as they were? Idris Elba? Taylor Swift. Oh, dude, yeah. I was so disappointed. Like, I have, and so I have not seen, Taylor Swift has very few movies. She has like this, The Lorax, and The Giver. And so I've seen The Lorax. She has five minutes of screen time in that one. Not much to observe there, really. Um, But I have not seen The Giver. So this is really the only thing that I have to judge like any sort of like genuine acting prowess. Um, The song she sings about McCavity is okay. It's boring. I was disappointed that, like, in her vocals. Problem. And so when she's acting, it's just like, I don't know. It feels... J- also, her character doesn't show up until the third act. So like, just as a character, she's also out of place, as well as her performance. So I I definitely understand where you're coming from. Um, Judy Dench, Idris Elba, and Ian McKellen are the three that just kind of like blow me away with like what they do in this movie. Idris Elba, I think, is trying really hard, but his character sucks. Sorry, it's not good. Um, and he's the antagonist of this movie. He makes people disappear so that he can like f- essentially be the last remaining contender for the next life so he wins the jellicle ball he's not intimidating he's not intimidating like and there's nothing about his character that just is engaging at all um but it's just it's frustrating yeah it's uh i don't know like i want to have good things to say about this but outside of jennifer hudson and my soft spot for Mr. Mistopheles. This was something. It's hard. It was something. It was an experience. I recommend watching it once just for the experience, but I don't know. Watch it with your friends. So the two more things that I want to say about this is the reason why this movie is so off-putting from the start actually has to do with both of the reasons I'm about to say. is One, it is edited poorly. I say this Mm -hmm. every time I mention bad editing. The thing about good editing is you're not supposed to notice it. And as soon as you notice the editing, it's bad. I notice the editing all the time. They would cut between characters in the middle of dialogue. Like while someone was speaking, they would cut in like the wrong way. During a dance number, they would cut in the middle of a move like the ensemble would be doing like a big move we're supposed to be watching and it would cut to something else entirely and it's just all these little things that start to add up and it was very choppy i don't know it's 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 yeah exactly um and the other thing that i think makes people genuinely uncomfortable out this uh, uncomfortable about this movie is that it's weirdly sensual yes like all the cats are in everybody's business all the time 
they're doing like they're dragging their arms across somebody's legs. They're like moving their hips in front of somebody. They're nuzzling themselves up against the other person. Like there's all this weird sensuality with let's remember incredibly uncanny Valley anthropomorphic cats. And it's the movie is out the gate with that tone and it sets a very uncomfortable precedent that is followed almost to the letter for the rest of the movie. We we never don't see a feeling like that. This movie was every Animorphs fan wet dream. Oh, yeah. I would even one-up you. Uh, this movie is every warrior cat kid's dream. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Hey, hey, I dated a warrior cat kid. I'm not convinced that they would find much wrong with this movie like we did. You know what You know what else was unsettling that I forgot to mention? What? The milk bar. Yeah. And this kind of goes back to that thing I was talking about where this movie can't decide if the joke is they're cats that act like humans or they're just cats. Because this is the thing, like, this is one of the things they would do. They have theater buildings. They have (sighs) bars. They have domiciles. But Bustopher Jones also digs through the trash that is human-sized, human-sized trash. So the consistency of it is infuriating. And stuff like the milk bar, which is just unsettling in and of itself, just adds to this layer of frustration. And not to mention that, you know, every time I think of Milk Bar now, I can only think of A Clockwork Orange. Oh, yeah. They also bring up milk a few times in Guys and Dolls, too. They be drinking milk. They just drink milk. Andrew would have loved that time period. (laughs) He just gets to drink milk willy-nilly with no one judging him for it. (sighs) So, Um, what do you rate this one? So... It's low. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to decide if it's Bridges of Madison County low. Ooh. I think for for memory alone, mm-hmm. I'm going to knock it up just a little bit higher, but not much. This bad boy sits at a 3 out of 10. Ooh. Okay. Okay. I was thinking I was thinking like a 3.5, maybe 3, 3.75, maybe. Like, there are things from this movie that you can gleam, right? Like, there are parts of this CG that I think are interesting to look at. And I think that it's valuable to study it to an extent. Um, there are... Rum Tum Tugger has a good song. Uh, Mr. Mistopheles has a good song. Uh, Memory is a good song. Mm-hmm. But when I list the quality of good things against the quality of things that make this a difficult watch, like, it's outnumbered. The, the good things... Yeah, the good things are outnumbered like 10 to 1. So I don't want to say that it's as bad of like, oh, the only good thing about it is that when I hit play, it worked. Um, but it is rough. It is, this is a rough watch. Because by the time, because when you get to the end of the movie, right, the funny has worn off. And you're like, I have 30 minutes. And the joke that I'm watching a bad movie isn't funny anymore. Yeah. Thankfully, this one was shorter than Guys and Dolls, though. Yes. Oh, my God. If there was another 30 minutes in this movie, I... I wouldn't have finished it. (laughs) I'm beyond. honest. Wouldn't have finished. Um, Oh, man. Okay. So, I'm glad that we 
were able to look through some hits. I'm glad we were able to kind of look at the stinkers. I'm glad that we had like a good variety this episode. I definitely think that uh, our inner theater kids got to run wild with this one and that we could have done probably a full podcast episode for each of these individually, except cats. (laughs) (laughs) We could. It would be out of character for me the way I destroy that movie for an entire hour. Um, I feel like there aren't a lot of movies, a lot of themes. I feel like there aren't a lot of episodes. That's the word. That we really get to see like the full range of quality in terms of cinema. Like the fact that we have like good to like, We have awful, mid, good, and great kind of all in the same episode. Like, very rarely do we get to scale that pantheon. And, you know, you got to see some of the better Andrew Lloyd Webber and Andrew Lloyd Webber at his worst. You know. Yeah. Here we are. Um, Okay. I'm done talking about that. Okay, Craig. You introduce the theme. I'll read the movies. Okay. We are doing a very cool month that I'm excited to do. We are doing a Studio Ghibli month where we are taking a bunch of some of the more well-known Ghibli stuff, some of the lesser-known Ghibli stuff, and we're we're taking a highlight of that, and I'm very excited to do that. We are doing Spirited Away, Castle in the Sky, Kiki's Delivery Service, and we're rounding the month out with My Neighbor Totoro. I'm very excited. I've seen two of these and I haven't seen two of these and those are my favorite kind of episodes where I like get to rewatch a movie I haven't seen in a while and I also get to like watch something new so um I'm excited to kind of dip my toe back in I have seen three out of the four but I'm very excited to see the fourth one and rewatch the others because love me love me love me these movies and including all the ones we didn't list sorry if anybody's disappointed that Howl's Moving Castle isn't on here look we had to have some variety, okay? I'm sorry. I'm not. <sighs> Craig. I'm unapologetic with this show. We'll, we'll, we'll get back in. We'll, we'll get into that deeper next time. I'm Bug, and I'm small. That sounded like a threat, <laughs> and I'm tall. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for our Movie Musicals Month. We'll see you next month for our Studio Ghibli Month. The pause there was because you couldn't decide if you were going to say Ghibli or Ghibli. We have to we have to reach some sort of solidarity before next month. What do you say? I say Ghibli. Okay. We'll see you next month for our studio Ghibli month. Have fun, be safe, and make good choices. Mwah! Mwah!